Dale and Lords Valley in Pennsylvania. The Women's Health Center is a Wayne Memorial Community Health Center. WMH.org. Hello, 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 and welcome to the local edition. News and information to keep you connected in the Catskills and Northeast Pennsylvania. I'm your host for this Thursday, Patricio Robayo. We are continuing our year in review coverage for this entire week. Tonight, we'll be focusing on health. What happened this past year in health? What's happening currently? And what we can do about it? Currently, we are seeing a surge of RSV, flu, and COVID here in Sullivan County. For COVID alone, according to the New York Times, on average, we are seeing 21 cases a day. We have an 8% positivity rate. 59 people are hospitalized. According to the New York Times, the number of hospitalized COVID patients has risen in Sullivan County area. Deaths have remained at the same level. The community level for COVID-19 in Sullivan County is medium based on cases and hospitalization, according to the most recent update from the CDC on December 22nd. Currently, we have an influx of flu, RSV, and COVID. In November, I spoke to Dr. Jonathan Nasser, an internal medicine doctor and pediatrician physician at Crystal Run Healthcare, about why is the surge of RSV in young children happening now? Here's what he had to say. Yeah, you know, what's interesting about RSV. RSV is a, an old nemesis of ours. We've been dealing with RSV in pediatrics in particular, but also in, in older adults for many years. And in general, like other respiratory illnesses, it is a fall virus that typically is seasonal. And we start to typically see it in October. And it kind of runs for a few months and then settles down again. Um, so what's happening right now in the community is not unusual in terms of the time of year. Um, it's a little unusual in the sense that we're seeing a lot of other illnesses. And so there's just a lot of respiratory illness right now. And RSV is getting attention, but we're also seeing it in the context of existing, um, you know, COVID, which is still around and, and influenza, which is peaking a little bit or starting to be present a little bit earlier than usual. So all three are happening together and that's overwhelming schools, doctors, offices, hospitals. Um, and I think for that reason, you know, it's been covered in the press a lot, RSV, but um, it's really not new. But in, in the light of all of these things happening together, we're getting a lot of attention with it now. Since we are seeing a surge of RSV, but also, like you just mentioned, COVID and the flu, can you tell us what are some of the hallmarks that can help distinguish between those different illnesses? Because they are similar. Yeah, and, and that's where it's challenging. They're actually, you know, when we see somebody in the office nowadays with a respiratory illness, we test for all three, because they are, in many cases, indistinguishable. Um, just talking about RSV first, and then I think it might be easier to say that RSV has a couple of things that are that are slightly concerning to us. One is it is very, you know, potentially dangerous for young infants. And so as pediatricians, and I, I didn't share, but I'm a pediatrician and an internist, so I see all ages. But as pediatricians, we do get worried about young infants, and in particular, former preemies, and babies who may have an underlying condition like a heart problem for with RSV because it causes a very characteristic syndrome called bronchiolitis. 
And bronchiolitis in a young baby causes wheezing and trouble breathing, fast breathing, and low oxygen levels. And that's a little bit different than flu or COVID in that population. Flu and COVID in young infants doesn't seem to be quite as severe in most cases, and it doesn't generally cause a wheezing illness. So for us as physicians, we worry about young infants, and it also has a little bit of a different clinical picture. For parents you know, of young infants, they can be very difficult to distinguish. Uh, and so typically, if you have a fever and a cough and an upper respiratory infection, it could be any of those things. And, you know, reasons we would want you to be concerned and potentially to reach out to your doctor would be really high fever that's not coming down. Your your baby is not able to feed because they can't catch their breath. Um, they have some color changes. They're not peeing their normal amount because they're, they're not able to feed. And so those are some of the clues that whatever it is, RSV, flu, or COVID, um, you know, we sh- we'd want to hear from you and to get additional attention. Can you test for RSV? There is. And in fact, we often, you know, our hospitals are overwhelmed and so are the physician offices. But we do think in many cases, these questions can go to the to a, a parent's pediatrician or family medicine doctor who takes care of them. Because in many cases, you know, we, we are able to evaluate and treat in the office. So there is an RSV test. It's been around for a long time. Um, it's uh, There's two different types, just like flu and COVID. There's an antigen test or a rapid test. And there's a PCR. Most of the time we do the antigen test. Um, it's, it, we get an answer back fairly quickly. One of the struggles, though, for all of these things is, <clears throat> especially in infants, there's not a lot of treatment. So for in most cases, we offer supportive care, um, you know, which includes, you know, hydration and TLC and controlling fever. In some situations and immunocompromised children and adults, you know, there are treatments for COVID. Paxlovid is out. I think most people know about that now. And there are treatments for influenza, an old standard called Tamiflu. But RSV doesn't have one of those. So typically, you know, we we try to just give supportive care for someone who's diagnosed with RSV. And most of the press that I'm seeing is dealing with young children. But I understand that older adults or immune compromised adults can also be infected with RSV. Is that correct? Yeah, I think all of us are at risk to get RSV. I, I think one way to think about it, I think about RSV in an adult it's that really bad cold that you feel like you have like a, a, a pain in your chest when you cough and you feel like you have like this really sort of crud in your chest that you just can't cough up. That, that I think is the clinical symptoms that an adult may have when they have RSV. And we're all at risk to get it. You know, we're not wearing masks anymore and we're all gathering, which, which I think we're all happy about, but it does. It's one of the reasons we think the RSV is, is surging right now in the sense that we're all kind of celebrating being back together. That was Dr. Jonathan Nasser from Christopher One Healthcare about why RSV infections are surging. Let's rewind the clock a little bit and talk about monkeypox. In June, the first case of monkeypox was confirmed in Sullivan County. At that time, it reached 75 countries and affected over 16,000 people around the world. At that time, according to the World Health Organization, the United States has the most cases in the world and declared monkeypox a global emergency. I had a chance to speak to Haley Matola from Sullivan County Public Health about the cases of monkeypox that was found in Sullivan County. What can you do to keep safe? And should we be worried? Here's what Haley had to say. So, so far, 
far in Sullivan County, we haven't seen any further outbreaks or anything that um, we're concerned with as of this moment. Of course, things are always constantly changing. And, and like you mentioned, um, other surrounding areas are seeing an increase in cases, especially in New York City. So that's something that, of course, you know, is close to home. So we keep an eye on that. The World Health Organization announced that monkeypox is a global emergency now. What is Sullivan County doing to prepare? So we're always in a state of preparedness. <laughs> so as with like measles or COVID or H1N1 or any other disease outbreak that kind of surpasses normal or average numbers, um, we work, of course, preventative measures, education, response measures. So disease emergencies are really something that we're, we're always prepared for. So securing, you know, vaccine, working with the New York State Department of Health and creating clinics and, and kind of just doing everything that we've done for forever. <laughs> Who should be concerned about being infected? Yeah. So really, I mean, it, it is a disease that can um, infect anybody. Um, it's spread through close contact with lesions, respiratory droplets with prolonged period of like face-to-face -face intimate contact, kissing, you know, talking for an extended period of time very close together. It could be with shared bedding, um, towels, it can be passed from uh, mother to fetus during pregnancy. Um, but we have seen in, within the country and the state, um, it kind of impacting the LGBTQIA uh, community a little bit more so um, through contact. Um, so, of course, in terms of like vaccine eligibility, um, that is a community of, uh, you know, that we, we pay attention to in, in this case with this outbreak. But, of course, it impacts anybody. It just happened to kind of um, start in that group, but um, it, can, it can impact anybody. When the measles came around in Sullivan County, there were folks were encouraged if they haven't received the booster shot recently or maybe don't remember when they received the a booster shot for the measles. It was a good idea to sort of get your measles booster shot just to sort of protect yourself uh, since measles was at that time was going to be sort of prevalent that summer. Right? I, from my memory, uh, do you see that happening uh, with monkeypox that that we should prepare and get vaccinated to have that that protection. And I honestly, I don't remember it being sort of vaccine that you get as a kid. I, I'm not remembering that. Yeah. So with this, um, monkeypox, the vaccine that's used for monkeypox is actually the vaccine for smallpox. So uh, smallpox was eradicated from the United States um, decades ago. And, but the vaccine was given until, um, I believe, the early 1970s. So there is a, a good subset of people that have been vaccinated for smallpox. But after that, um, you know, nobody after that generation has been vaccinated with the smallpox vaccine. So we've already held um, a clinic here, uh, two clinics actually out of um, the public health building. And really, it's all just based around when the state sends us vaccine. <laughs> so um, it's a little bit like the early COVID days where, you know, we're allotted, uh, you know, a certain amount of vaccine and, and have an eligibility criteria that has to be met for people uh, to sign up and get vaccinated. 
so it's kind of um, it's kind of similar to those those early COVID days. Um, but yeah, there are people that are out there that are going to have already been vaccinated for smallpox, but it is going to be kind of a limited population. How worried should we be as a general population? Thinking back to when COVID hit, I remember in early January and February, it was sort of a concern that, hey, this may come around. And then, boom, March came and just sort of changed everything and everything went to lockdown. How worried should be the general public with monkeypox? So monkeypox is much less contagious. It's not an airborne disease. It's not something you can get from, you know, walking by somebody in the grocery store or being in the same room with somebody without having that close contact. Um, so really, it's it's intimate contact, close contact, living with somebody. I'm, you know, very kind of like skin to skin. Um, so it's not something that the general public needs to be, you know, you know, wearing wearing any sort of different PPE or anything like that. It's not like something that you get from the grocery store. So it's not something, if, if you believe that you're someone who's at high risk, somebody who may have been exposed, somebody um, who would be at risk for having skin-to-skin contact with, like, a possible suspect case, you know, that's a different story. And then you would just call, you know, public health here. But the general public, it's not something that, you know, you should be extremely worried about. Of course, always staying up to date um, with the latest, you know, science that's available. Uh, because, of course, as, as we've all seen, uh, things can constantly change. Um, but at this time, it's not something that the general public has to be concerned with when they're just out and about in their daily life. We're still in the midst of a COVID-19 pandemic. People are still getting infected. What lessons have you and Sullivan County have learned that sort of can apply to this new growing concern of monkeypox that, that's happening here regionally and across the country and around the world? We all have been sort of traumatized for the past two years and lived through a COVID-19 pandemic. I'm sure there have been lessons learned. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's kind of difficult just because they're, they're, they're not very parallel. It's difficult to make comparisons just because they're so different. Um, so I think it's kind of more like major themes that you can kind of take away. Um, I think being practical and being positive and uh, good communication with community partners and with the community in general is going to be something that's most beneficial in terms of like the actual, you know, empirical, you know, epidemiology and science of it all. You know, it's, it's there. This isn't like a new disease. That was Haley Matola who we spoke to in July about monkeypox and COVID-19 in Sullivan County. We'll be right back, and we'll look back at our conversations with Sullivan 180 and Hope Not Handcuffs. Stay tuned. In Public Radio, we value our relationship with each and every one of our listeners. You listen to us, and we listen to you, too. So keep our connections strong. When you join those who donate to Radio Catskill, you'll power more of the news you trust and more of the music you enjoy. So add your voice and your gift 
before the year ends by donating at WJFFradio.org. And thank you for being one of our valued listeners. Habarigani! This is Janice Adams wishing you wisdom and joy this Kwanzaa. To honor where we have come from and light our way forward, I invite you to a season's griot, the annual public radio Kwanzaa special with host Madafa Lloyd Wilson. It celebrates the tales and traditions of African-American and African peoples. It's a season's griot, Saturday at noon on Radio Catskill. Hello, 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 and welcome back to the local edition Local news and information to keep you connected in the Catskills in Northeast Pennsylvania. I'm your host, Patricio Robayo, for Thursday. We're taking a look back at the health issues that Sullivan County, the Northeast Pennsylvania, has faced in 2022. Earlier, we talked about RSV, COVID, and the flu. And we also talked about the outbreak of monkeypox that happened during the summer. One thing we did in 2022 was check in monthly with Sullivan 180. This is an interview I did with Samantha Mango, the communications manager for Sullivan 180 in January, talking about encouraging healthy behaviors in the new year. And since we are coming up on a new year, I thought some of the information still applies. Here's Samantha Mango from Sullivan 180. Really simple, easy changes in their life and their choices that can help make health changes within themselves and eventually these are evidence-based strategies that are known to improve health outcomes. Can you expand on those healthy behaviors? Sure. We have three commitments. The first is a goal of reducing smoking and vaping, and that's using the evidence-based strategy of using media and health communications to highlight the dangers of tobacco use and reshaping social norms around smoking and vaping. The second goal is reducing obesity. And that strategy is increasing the number of institutions and organizations within the county to follow nutritional standards for healthy food and beverage procurement. And the third is increasing physical activity. So that strategy is implementing obesity prevention guidelines. This all seems like it's geared towards preventative care, preventing these other diseases from becoming worse, like heart disease and diabetes and things like that. Yes, It's massively involved in prevention, which if you look at our health rankings, if we, if we start with prevention, the major things that affect our health rankings later on in life can, can be changed eventually. Right. And one of those things you mentioned is obesity and that could have sort of a domino effect on your health and it could relate, it could lead to heart disease, diabetes and, a whole number of other things that, that could be, like I said, could be preventative, uh, folks make healthier choices. But of course, during this pandemic, it's been really tough for some people. And a lot of people were making unhealthy choices during, during the pandemic. So sort of a uh, cope with the things going on. So I guess in the new year, you could sort of refocus and make those small changes that, that could lead to bigger changes down the road. Like, you know, um, just make small changes to have a healthier lifestyle. Yeah. And they're really simple and small changes. So we're not asking anyone or any organization to implement something that's massive or unattainable to reduce obesity. We're simply asking people to look at possibly eliminating sugar-sweetened beverages from their diet or organizations specifically to look at their 
vending machines and see if they're following the American Heart Association healthy vending standards. That's very easy to do and would make a significant change. If folks listening to this or an organization is listening to this and want to get involved, how can they do so? Yeah, we'd love for any and all organizations within the county to get involved. And we're working with our community advisory board members, as well as the Sullivan County Chamber of Commerce business members. And we have a new page on our website under Encouraging Healthy Behaviors. So you can see the three goals and their strategies listed on there. And we also have the resources provided that that are local resources. So if if someone, let's say someone who works at Jeff Bank wants to work on reducing smoking and vaping, we have resources on there for the tobacco-free action community, the American Lung Association, um, ways to get involved in No Tobacco Day or Take Down Tobacco. There's websites and emails listed right on the website, so it's very easy to find the help that you need. And what is that website? It's Sullivan180.org. Now, looking at the website, I see that if an organization achieves a certain um, uh, achievement, I guess, uh, they're rewarded with some kind of award program. Can you sort of expand on that? Yes. We've asked our community advisory board, which is almost 40 organizations throughout the county, to commit to these three goals over the next year. So we will ask the members of these organizations to submit their proof of commitments. So for example, if uh, an organization like SUNY Sullivan wants to increase their physical activity, they can come out to the Snow and W event, which is on February 26th on the Liberty Rail Trail. And that's an outdoor fun run along the O&W Trail in Liberty. They can take a picture at the trailhead and just click submit goal work here. And that's their proof of commitment. That's Samantha Mango from Sullivan 180 in January talking about healthy initiatives that Sullivan 180 were doing for the past year. In August, I had a chance to speak to the Angels of Hope Not Handcuffs during International Overdose Awareness Day. Sullivan 180, along with Hope Not Handcuffs, was holding a special vigil that evening to help raise awareness about overdoses and reduce the stigma of drug-related deaths. Sullivan County has the highest per capita deaths from opioids outside of New York City in New York State. He's part of my conversation with the organization Hope Not Handcuffs. Hope Not Handcuffs is an organization that help find viable treatment options for individuals seeking help to reduce the dependence on prescription medication, alcohol, heroin, and other drugs. Sullivan County has the highest opioid death rate per capita outside of New York City in New York State. And in March of 2022, 20% of all deaths in Sullivan County were opioid-related, according to the Sullivan County Coroner. What are we doing to change that? I'm Patricia Robile for Radio Caskill. In this episode, we'll get to explore a program that looks to help find a viable treatment option for people seeking help to reduce their dependence on prescription medication, alcohol, and other drugs. Hope, not handcuffs. We will learn what this program is all about and who are the volunteers that they call angels who go out and help someone in crisis when they are needed. They are the angels of hope, not handcuffs. Today, I'm joined 
with Annette Cars, Executive Director for Tri-County Community Partnership and the Program Director for Hope Not Handcuffs in New York, and Wendy Brown, Deputy Commissioner of Health and Human Services for Sullivan County. We also get to speak to some of the angel volunteers for Hope Not Handcuffs, Maureen Lerner, Lindsay Wheat, Judy Balaban, and Paige Batkin. It's just, it, every day is heart-wrenching. It really is. So I want to make a difference. Hope Not Handcuffs is, uh, helps people struggling with substance abuse disorder. They come to any participating police agencies or, or community partner and ask for help without the fear of being arrested. Annette, how did this partnership come about between Hope Not Handcuffs and Sullivan County? Sure. So just a like a little bit of background on this type of work in general is um, this type of work. This is what's called deflection and or diversion. There's usually two names uh, that are associated with pre-arrest diversion. Um, in some cases, it's post-arrest uh, working with district attorneys. Um, but uh, this is a, a model that started around 2015 uh, in Gloucester, Massachusetts, um, by a nonprofit organization called PARI, or I, I say it PARI, I'm from the Midwest, but some people say PARI, um, but um, it stands for Police Assisted Addiction Recovery Initiative. So there are over 700, uh, I believe 750 law enforcement agencies around the country that are doing this type of work. We are just one model of this work where we involve the community members. Um, in some cases, some police departments will work with it directly with a human service organization. Um, in some cases, the police officers themselves are uh, what we call an angel. Um, but we use a technique called community mobilization. Basically, what we do is we use our, our resources that we have in our communities, which are the people who are most directly affected by this uh, issue. Um, you're seeing some of here, but I promise you just about all of our volunteers have some kind of direct, you know, experience uh, with addiction. And um, we we sort of give them a job. I mean, uh, people raise their hands. They want to help. Uh, they just want to uh, do something to pay it forward, to help somebody else. Maybe someone has helped them at some point in their lives. So um, we, we have uh, over 500 uh, trained volunteers. And I'd just like to thank you, Annette. I just would like to jump in on that a little bit because one of the things that D.A. Galligan has done has really, um, you know, working with the Hope Not Handcuffs uh, with Annette and the team is giving us an option. And the police officers uh, in our county have really embraced this. And I always use the example, and I'm going to talk about, you know, a local box store. If the if a police officer gets called to go to one of the local box stores here, and it's because someone has stolen like 15 tubes of toothpaste. Well, the chances are that the person doesn't really want to brush their teeth all the time is that they may be stealing to support their drug addiction. So the police officers have the, have the option to say to this person at that encounter, look, we can go the legal route, or if you have a drug issue, let us help you get into treatment and the person does not get arrested. It's a pre-arrest diversion program. And there's a very specific uh, follow-up if the person, you know, a lot of communication with the Hope Not Handcuffs team. If the person does not follow through, whatever, then other steps are taken. But this really empowers the police department at that first, at that first interaction. Like Annette said, for many people, it's their first time getting into the, you know, getting involved with the, with the criminal justice system. So it's, it's really a, a, 
I, I can't tell you how impressed I am. And I've been doing this for a long, long time with this program. And I, I know that when um, someone in my family had a drug issue and we were looking for services, it was almost impossible to find a place for him to go. Um, and he had insurance. Uh, and thank goodness we were successful and able to, you know, to get his life together. But with Hope Not Handcuffs, people who don't have the advocates or the resources now do. And that does it for the local edition. We'll be back tomorrow with special year in review highlights from the past year. Past best interviews, best conversations we had. I'll be joined with none other than the program director of WJFF Radio Catskill, Jason Dole. And if you ever miss a show, we have a podcast. You can find us anywhere you find your favorite podcast. Google, Apple, Stitcher. Search for WJFF, the local edition. Subscribe, share it, tell your friends. Find us on social media. We're WJFF Radio Catskill. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Visit our website, wjffradio.org slash the local edition. You've been listening to the local edition, a special edition of Health, a year in review. I've been your host, Patricio Robayo. Have a good night, Lucy. This is Radio Catskill, your NPR station. WJFF Jeffersonville, W23AH, Matzel. And I'll see you tomorrow. Support for Radio Catskill comes from the Women's Health Center in Honesdale, Hamlin, Waymart, Carbondale, and Lords Valley in Pennsylvania. Physicians and certified midwives who deliver. The Women's Health Center is a Wayne Memorial Community Health Center. WMH.org. From Rourke Law, Liberty, New York, a general law practice serving the Catskills and Delaware River Valley, with an emphasis on estate planning, estate administration, elder law, and real property matters. RourkeLaw.com. WJFF Jeffersonville, W233AH Monticello. Radio Catskill. On air, online, on your smartphone, and on your smart speaker. Public radio for the Catskills and Northeast Pennsylvania. We are Radio Catskill. Keeping you connected.